Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're in the midst of our series, Anointed, talking about these characters who arise from the Bible not by the strength of their own hand or by their particular skill, but because God has put an anointing upon them to, uh, to be leaders of God's people in a particular way. Uh, the, the stories that are lifted up in the scriptures are not meant to make superstars of these characters, but they are meant to be illustrative to us, to all of us. Because there comes a point in all of our lives where we are anointed for a time. I know there's a hymn in our hymnals that a lot of people used to love to sing. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. Um, the reality is that life isn't really like that. We don't just sit around waiting every day for that one big moment to arrive and then we step up to the plate hit one high and deep with the bases loaded over the center field fence and everybody cheers as we round the bases in our home run trot. That's not how life works. We are making our way in the world. And the things that we do every day, the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, uh, as Reverend Terry Heck, who was here a few months ago, said even the clothes that we wear when we choose to pay attention to how they are made, why a $3 t-shirt only costs $3 and what sweatshop was involved in that, it becomes a much more uh, complicated world to live in. Every day carries with it those moments for God's anointed to, to make right decisions about the way that we live in the world. And so we're going to talk a little bit this morning about how uh, the scriptures in this case are moving a man we know as David toward a more fully integrated life before God. Because David was a, was a man who had become a very public persona. He had a public personality. He had a reputation. He was a king. They were singing about him. Saul, slay, uh, uh, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. Uh, he was a very popular king. When he, when he took off his armor and he danced with zeal before the Lord, uh, he just uh, amazed everybody. And they thought, here's this passionate king who's a champion in battle, who's a, a key strategist. All of these powerful characteristics that made him a great leader are also there with a shadow side. And when David chose to stay home from battle, and when he saw Bathsheba bathing, he was as decisive in his, in his moments um, as he was in any battle. He knew what he wanted, he saw what he wanted, he took what he wanted, he sent Bathsheba home. And Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, she conceived and bore a son, and as we discussed last week, David now had an issue on his hand. Surely somebody in the, in the castle might have seen. Surely somebody might know. Surely it, when Uriah comes home from battle, he's going to know. So he brought Uriah home. He got him drunk. Twice sent him home to sleep with his wife. And twice this man, Uriah, 
proved to be more than the measure of his king. I cannot go home and enjoy myself and frolic with my wife while the Ark of the Covenant is in the field and my comrades are sleeping in tents. David tried. He tried. I mean, he began to think to himself, well, it's Uriah's own fault. I gave him every opportunity to go home and get me off the hook. But I'm the king, and I can't have this thing getting out. I've got to create some kind of a situation where I can explain my way out of all of this. So he sat up all night while Uriah slept at the gates of the palace, and he wrote a note to his, to his commander in the field, to Joab. See that Uriah is placed in the, in, the, in the spot in the battle lines of greatest danger. Send him right up to the wall and then withdraw the help from around him. And then he gave that note to Uriah himself and he asked Uriah to carry his own death warrant back to the battlefield. Everywhere that Bathsheba is mentioned from here on out in Scripture. She is mentioned not as Bathsheba, but as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, in the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel, as they're going down through all the, the generations, there comes a moment where it's mentioned the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Because the authors of Scripture don't ever want us to forget that a king being a king is not a license to do anything we want. And this is true in small kingdoms as well as large. Being a pastor, being a parent, being a principal of a school, being a president of the United States does not give us almighty power to do whatever we want, whenever we want. There is a structure and a, and a kind of morality to the universe that is placed there by God and we're expected to live into that. Here's what I want to struggle with you today to consider. A professor of mine in seminary, Dr. James Sanders, he, he, he talks at length about the fact that when God judges the earth, that God's judgment upon the earth is mercy. God's judgment is mercy. We live in a world that is other than that. If somebody messes up, we want retribution. If somebody makes a mistake, we want to end it. If somebody wants to, if somebody does something wrong, we want to see justice done the way we would do justice. It doesn't make sense in modern thinking to have David doing all of this. He has committed adultery. He has coveted something that belonged to his neighbor, namely Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And one of those commandments says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. By the way, coveting doesn't just mean jealousy. Coveting may, means making a systematic plan, plan to obtain the things that belong to your neighbors. I really struggled with that when I lived in Moreno Valley because that was a community that boomed like crazy. And in the midst of the boom, we began to see troubling signs in the local economy. The base was closing down part of its operation. And all of a sudden, it, people were realizing the houses had been overbuilt, you know. And I saw in the newspaper rack one day, I saw a little magazine, like the Penny Saver. You remember the old Penny Savers? And in this newspaper rack, there was a magazine, a little news rag that was called 
Foreclosure Magazine. And I sat there and thought, this, this is a group of people who are making money on the misery of others. They're profiting by people who are losing everything they had to foreclosure. And I thought, this is, this is a problem. We should be able to do something about it. And I, and I thought about it all afternoon, and then I laid down on the couch and just tried to forget it because the, the problem just seemed too big to me. Like the, the deck gets stacked against us from time to time. And I cried out to God, why don't you judge these people? And God was saying, I am judging these people. I am judging the world all the time, but my judgment is right there. My judgment is mercy. Oh, sinner man, what are you going to do? You run to the rock. You run to Christ. When we are sinning, we run to Christ and we, and we cry out for his, his mercy, his mercy. But when our next door neighbor lets the lawn grow too high and the weeds take over and when they leave things in the front yard that shouldn't be there, then we cry out to God for justice, justice, justice. And we want God to come and smite the neighbors and take them down. But God's judgment upon the whole world is mercy. Even those like David, who having been anointed by God and received the covenant promise that your descendants shall sit upon the throne forever, commit murder. The, the judgment of God upon David is mercy. It might take us a while to get our heads and our hearts completely around this idea of God's the greatness of God's mercy. That God doesn't always just intervene and stop things. That God allows us to struggle in the midst as sin becomes a tighter and tighter noose around us. David is trying to protect his reputation. The sin he is struggling with at this point is just pride itself. I can't have anyone finding out. Joab, his commander, does as he is told. He puts Uriah at the front of the battle. He withdraws a little bit. The arrows are flying from the battlement walls. Uriah is struck down and killed. And Joab sends a messenger back. By the way, Pastor Jerry and I were talking before church about this too. Being a messenger in those days might not have been the best thing career-wise. Because when a king hears news that the king doesn't like, um, then it, it can go bad. Now, it's been a few days since he sent Uriah off to battle. And now the word comes back, and David has already begun to release in his mind his own self from all the pressures that were keeping him awake at night. And so the word comes back, well, we pushed up next to the wall, and a, a number of our soldiers were taken down. And, the, and the, David, the old battle chief, says, what were you doing so close to the wall? <laughs> Why did you do that? You know, you know there's, there are stories in our past of people who drop millstones on our soldiers and kill them. What were you doing up that close to the wall? But Joab had told the messenger, if the king loses his temper, Joab knew that he would, just say this, Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. And so in the midst of his rage, as David is ready to take it out on somebody, he stops and says, who can say with battle? Sometimes the arrows fly here, sometimes the arrows fly there. Don't let this seem like an evil thing to you. Just let it go. David catches himself. 
The wife of Uriah the Hittite learns that her husband has died. She goes into the prescribed period of mourning. And after the time of mourning is completed, David sends for her. She moves into the palace and she bears David a son. It's all done. Nobody has found out. Oh, Joab may have his suspicions and a few of the, a few of the people in the palace may be talking behind the back, but there's nobody in a position now to unseat David. He has come to believe that he has sealed and cemented his reputation and no one is going to find out. But as a line in a movie that was released a few years back called Magnolia, so it goes and so it goes. And you may think that you're through with your past, but your past is not through with you. David will always be the one who slew the giant, but he will always be the one who bears in his life the scars of this episode, in which sin wraps its tentacles around his life. I'm talking about the condition of sin, the condition which manifests itself in lust and in pride and in envy, in sloth, in spiritual carelessness. Sin begins to wrap its tentacles around David's life. It ensnares him, and the, and the noose gets tighter, and the noose gets tighter. And these stories are here in the Scripture because the same thing happens to each of us. Each of us. When we try to live a life that is public in one way and private in another. Now, there are people lots of them running around who say, I don't want to be a hypocrite anymore, so I'm going to sleep around, I'm going to drink whenever I can, I'm going to do all that I can. That way, when you see me messing up, I won't be a hypocrite. Anybody here subscribe to that way of thinking? I, I've known colleagues in the, in the United Methodist Church who thought, well, you know, I'm tired of living on a pedestal and being discovered later on, so I'm just going to lower myself to the same level as everyone else around me. Fred Craddock talked about being a young pastor, and he was assigned in his school days to, to a little tiny rural church, and everybody there was working so hard all week long while he's sitting in the study thinking deep thoughts. And so one day he put on a pair of coveralls and some work boots and he came out to throw the hay with all the other guys and to do the work around the farm and he spent the day with them and he said the next day a pickup truck showed up with three of the local parishioners in it and they said, Pastor, get in the car, get in the truck, we're going downtown. And they went down and they fished out of their pocket enough money to buy him a, a simple brown suit. And he said, I can afford a suit. What are you doing? Don't spend your money. And they said, we don't need another farmhand in these here parts. We asked the church to send us a pastor. We have enough people wearing coveralls. If God has anointed us for influence, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we should just lower ourselves to whatever else we see around. There's a standard that God has set before our lives. There's a standard that God has spoken into your heart. And if from time to time you fail to meet that standard, the idea isn't just to let it all go and, and just lower the standard for everybody. No, we keep the bar as high as we can because the bar in this case is love. The bar is love. Christ's love for the world. 
self-sacrificing, self-giving, the bar that washes the feet of others and that doesn't care a whit about our reputation if our reputation is keeping us from God. And here's where this passage really has stayed with me over the years. A spiritual director spoke to me one time and he said, you know, the Bible really doesn't say very much about lying. It doesn't say anything at all, really, about lying. I mean, yes, a lying tongue is not to be trusted, and there are a few passages in here. But, but what the Scriptures really speak about quite eloquently is deceitfulness. And deceitfulness is not the same thing as lying. I can go through the whole day today and never utter a single lie. But it doesn't mean that I haven't been deceiving myself or someone else. And deceitfulness is the pathway to being ensnared into sin. The heart is wickedly deceitful, says the Psalms. Evil beyond measure. David wasn't being facetious when he told the messenger, don't let this look evil in your eyes. The Torah and the Talmud, they all make allowances that when the siege is on, we have the right to go out into battle and to take a life. The scriptures of the Hebrew people allowed for the taking of life in conflict and battle. But what no one has been able to tell David so far is this isn't that. This thing with Uriah isn't battle. This is murder. This is a king becoming God in his own eyes, taking into his own hands the matters of life and death. And the weight of sin gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Where do we go from here? Well, the very last word of today's Old Testament lesson is the word of grace. And the king had decided that it was not an evil thing to take a life for his own self-interest. But the thing that David did, says the scripture, was evil in the eyes of God. And there's our grace. We could live in a society that has relaxed every moral standard we can think of. As long as it gets us to our end, let them do this, let them do that, let them do this, let them do that. I've lived through 59 years of politicians who have been lowering the bar and lowering the bar and lowering the bar until I, I can't even see the space underneath it anymore. And in each generation, we just say it's going to be okay. Well, it isn't okay, and God sees. And the fact that God hasn't sent us all up in a cloud of dust doesn't mean that God doesn't regard it's the mercy that becomes the judgment. That God allows people to continue in their sin until such time as they can be brought to a place of righteousness and holiness by being presented with their own true self. Spoke with a man a few years ago who had been clean and sober for 35 years. But he said his path to sobriety started in a most unusual way. He went to an AA meeting. And as he walked in and he sat down and he went through the little rigmarole, he had been told by a judge he had to go there. It was either that or spend a few days in the slammer. So he went to the AA meeting. And the leader of the AA meeting, uh, uh, 
he said to him, so what's the drill? drill? What do I need to do? How to let the healing begin? And the leader of the AA meeting says, I think you should not come back. And he said, not come back? I have to be back. He said, I don't think you belong here. I think you should go out. I think you should get as drunk as you can, as often as you can. Don't drive, for God's sake, don't drive. But just tie one on. I mean, really, really, because you have not yet reached the bottom of where you're going. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing we can do for you until you do. That's a shocking word to hear, but he said that guy was exactly right. And I had to keep on spiraling down until I reached the bottom. And when I reached the bottom, I found that the bottom was sound, that underneath all of that, all of that was a sound place. Oh, we struggle, we struggle. 20 years ago, I had a chance to be in a small meeting with, of all people, Robert Schuller, the founder of the Crystal Cathedral. And he was telling a story to us, and he said, I was in a restaurant the other night with my wife, and we got into a heated discussion, and I was really kind of not going where she was going, and we were going back and forth and having hard words, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this, she said, smile. And he said, what? She said, smile. He said, I don't feel like smiling right now. And then she said, there's somebody from the cathedral over there. You need to smile. And so he smiled at her, and he continued to have the argument through uh, clenched teeth, you know, that were smiling. And he told us later, he said, on the way out of the restaurant, these people swung out of their way, came by and said, Pastor Schuler, it's so good to see you. I wasn't sure it was you until I saw you smile. Wow. If you have to walk through life pasting on whatever the people know you as because you can't be your true self because whatever you're into is not something that your reputation will allow you to share with anyone else, you're in hell. And the only place I know on the entire earth that we can go to find justice that is designed to end in forgiveness is right here in this church. Christianity has the only system of justice in the whole world who is designed to end in the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of life. And the only people who cannot truly partake of this gospel are those that are so full of themselves that they can never stop lying to anyone with a big smile on their face. So everyone will know it's you and you're okay. Are you with me? This is gospel. That we see ourselves truly as the people forgiven by Christ. And we see why. And we sense the power of God surge within, not me, and not you, but within us as a community of the faithful. Oh, this is what I want to bestow upon our children. This is why we need to have a school where kids can learn that you can't lie and make up stories and do this and do that and take your, your own life into your own hands at the expense of others. You can't do any of that. The children will know right from wrong. And they will know that when we fail to live up to the standards, that here is where we come to the church, the community of the faithful, and in the confidence of God's love, we confess ourselves openly and receive the healing of God. We'll be there by next week with David. But we all need to struggle a little bit this week. We all need to, 
We all need to feel it just a little bit. And I want to say, if you're someone who's been living with a deep, deep weight inside of you, if, there, if you are someone who has a, a hidden something somewhere, and you just don't want to carry it around anymore, Pastor Jerry's office is open. My office is open. There are Stephen ministers. There's the associates in ministry team. Reach out this week. In the name of Jesus, reach out to someone who loves you in the name of Jesus. And let that weight go. Take it off your shoulders. Speak to someone this week. I am, I'm speaking to the one who just like thinks I'm reading your mind right now. Coming to Christ with who you are is not going to be the end of you, but the beginning of a life of peace. Don't let this sin get any tighter, but deal with it. Open it up. Bring it forward. Share it. And you will find a deeper definition of gospel than you have ever known in your entire life. We need this. All of us, especially the one who thinks she needs it the least. Amen? Amen.